0: Thanks for tuning in to Story Living, where we learn from inspiring leaders and their stories. I'm Jack, founder of Light Adventures, a certified coaching firm on a mission to illuminate people through storytelling. For this episode's story, we have the opportunity of speaking with Jeremy Carrier, an engineering director at Facebook, who has had a fascinating story from selling a very successful startup during the dot-com era to architect roles at Microsoft, Fidelity, eBay, Google, and plenty of others. And we're going to particularly talk about how to unleash the power of autonomy. So let's flip to the first digital page of this story and dive in. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for joining. How are you doing today?
1: I'm well, Jack. How are you?
0: I'm doing real well. Love some of the things you have behind you. Where are you joining from today?
1: Uh, Yeah, we're super lucky uh, to have a place uh, in the Catskills a couple hours outside of of, um of new york out of manhattan where we usually are so yeah great to be out here in in the woods these days wonderful and you seen any good stars these days out in the woods uh yeah over over there with the telescope uh yeah the light light is great here nice and dark uh have, have the opportunity to see see some good stuff so yeah it's it's been uh been one of the great pleasures of this uh sort of forced isolation
0: yeah, there you go. Make the most of it. So, um, good segue. Then a little bit of technology over your right shoulder there. I'm curious as far as technology, how your love for it began. I know you mentioned a little bit of an experience in high school with computers. Walk us through what that was like for you, and how it, you know really has continued to where you're at today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, it was it was before high school. Um, I was uh, in elementary school, and I was fortunate enough to be part of a of a summer program. And uh, the teacher I was working with took a, a group of us to a high school that happened to be teaching a computer class. It was a like Commodore Pets. This is—you know—this will date me, obviously. Uh, uh, had my first first time. I actually put my hands, you know, physically on a co- on a computer, and it was it was you know instantaneous. Like this is this is going to be great. This is what I want to do, uh, and it really stuck. That was uh, from that moment on. I never really looked back and, and knew. Immediately, I wanted to do something for my professional career, um, you know, with computers. Didn't know what it was when I was, you know, 10, 11, but uh, that was the beginning.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. And it clearly worked out for you from your vast experience at a lot of different places that we'll eventually get to. But as this, you know, interest in technology grew, I think you mentioned you maybe thought even the teacher route early on. Um, And so I'm curious if you could share a little bit of, you know, your university experience and maybe even thoughts around how secondary education is shifting now. Um, So maybe some advice on how people should think about it these days.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, So I went to the University of Waterloo in uh, Waterloo, Ontario, Canada uh, and did a so-called cooperative education program, which is is basically very formalized internship program where you go to school for four months and then work for four months and alternate back and forth for for roughly roughly five years. Um, and as I was, and I'll come back to that in a second, but as I was exiting that program, I was convinced a hundred percent that I was going to go to grad school. I was going to go into academia. I was, you know, I had a field of study lined up. I had an advisor. I was, you know, all ready to go. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll go work for a couple of years and, you know, you learn that, learn that sort of the, the commercial sort of software, uh, space. And I never went back. I, you know, I, I, um, yeah, you know, we started my first startup uh, after a few years, and that was that was it. I never never really looked back. But um, uh, and 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 I, I do, and maybe we'll talk a little bit later about um, the you know sort of ideas around teaching and learning. But um, that 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 experience I had, that educational experience at Waterloo, uh, to speak to your point about about education. Um, was hugely impactful. So this, this opportunity to actually get real work experience as I was you know, learning this sort of theoretical foundation of computer science uh, you know, landed me with a degree and two years of actual sort of on-the-ground real software engineering experience, uh, which was, was really irreplaceable as a bootstrap, you know, kickstart for my career. Um, and what I see now, uh, hiring a lot at, at Facebook and previously at Google. Um, Folks that come into our recruiting kind of of programs uh, via non-traditional kind of, of paths, you know, did did uh, um, undergraduate studies in another field like music or or uh, anthropology or psychology, uh, and then you know developed a passion for technology and went through a boot camp program or or some other kind of of um, sort of post formal education. Um, learning about, about technology, about programming, about uh, software engineering, uh, I love to see candidates like that come into our, our recruiting programs because they really bring a, an amazing breadth of perspective to the table. Uh, and I, I've, I've met some amazing people that, that you know, didn't have the traditional computer science background that are some of the, the most impactful software engineers that I, I work with every day.
0: Mm, wonderful. Well, I love your thoughts around this well-rounded, you know, individuals, and certainly want to hear more around your hiring thoughts. Um, but first, let's go back to you know that startup experience. Uh, yeah. I know, Coming out of school, I think you were doing a little bit of research, and then at some point, we're in that uh, startup realm around the dot com area, and I know you had a really successful one. So maybe walk us through what that was like with the really successful one. But I believe you also had a, a humbling second attempt as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 a good a good question. So uh yeah so my my first startup uh we started around nineteen ninety eight and got got some funding around ninety nine uh and then we're we're super fortunate to to sell the company to a o l uh just as the dot com bubble was bursting uh towards the end of of two thousand so uh it was an amazing experience being in silicon valley in ninety nine two 2000, 2001, um being immersed in that you know in that startup environment where there was really no distinction between my family and my friends and my colleagues. It was all kind of one, one, one melange that was, uh, was a lot of fun. Um, But the humbling lesson was, uh, you know, we got acquired by AOL and and the co-founders we stayed at at AOL for a few years and then we decided to do another company together. Uh, And we had had developed, uh, unfortunately developed something of an arrogance that came from, Oh, we we just did this startup. Like we, you know it took about a year and we you know we got funding and we made our investors you know you know a pretty good return uh of course we're gonna get investment in our new crazy idea of course. uh turns out that's not actually the way it works <laughs> uh you know venture capitalists you know yes they appreciate the you know your your track record but you gotta have a good idea um and and one that's yeah you know, that's practical and um you know my my second company uh Again, we 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 entered with a with a lack of something of a lack of humility uh, that, that we very quickly you know worked our way out of as we we came to grips with the reality. But it was uh, it
0: was a very educational experience. Oh, certainly. Well, I appreciate your humility and sharing that and the lessons from it, uh, especially some of our viewers who are in that startup world. Um, so from AOL, then you know after that second startup, um, wide range of experience, fidelity, Google. Uh, eBay, I believe, Yahoo, yep. and so, you know, from those experiences, I know a lot of times you held this role of an architect, um, and so I know most people have a general understanding of what that means, but maybe paint a little picture of what's involved with this idea of, you know, an architect.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, a really interesting topic, and, and um, I kind of got into this, this sort of realm of software architecture when I was at, at Carnegie Mellon uh, working at the Software Engineering Institute, Uh, where I developed a a really kind of formal uh, perspective on what software architecture was, how it was defined. Um, And then uh, my experience met the real world and uh, discovered that a lot of those theoretical ideas, uh, extremely valuable and very powerful, but really need to be adapted to uh, be be practical and pragmatic in in, professional software engineering environments. Um, So I, I, Sort of went on this uh, on this bent, what I called low ceremony architecture for a while, where I kind of um, came up with a set of principles that let let folks step away from what software architecture means in a formal sense. You know how you make architecture decisions, and process and standards, um, and shift much more towards. a uh, a sort of a flexible definition that's centered around the idea of how you make decisions uh, in building software systems uh, where you prioritize the decisions that will have the greatest effect on the software that you're building. So there's some decisions that are uh, easy to change, some that are hard to change, Uh, some decisions will have a big impact on the result of your system in terms of its quality, some that will have a smaller impact. So, how you prioritize that decision making that's really where I focus kind of my attention on on applying the ideas of software architecture um, uh, over over you know my subsequent uh, experiences um, but yeah it 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 really does take a very pragmatic attitude to apply those those ideas effectively in uh, in professional software engineering
0: organizations. Hmm. super interesting, and you know this idea of the strategy you bring to the technical side. Uh, I know it's important to you from a people side as well. And so I'm curious from that experience of all these different corporate environments, many times at places that were, you know, peaking, right. And doing really well, very productive. Uh, And you shared a really interesting notion around shared understanding for a culture. So maybe elaborate a little bit more from a leadership point of view, why that's so important. And especially in these organizations that continue to thrive. Yeah, it, I
1: really think that that um as much as as you know those of us in in technology and who have you know built careers in in things like software engineering, as much as we think of ourselves as technologists um, maybe the biggest lesson I've learned over my the course of my career uh is it's really about people and really about building this shared understanding uh because it doesn't matter how good an idea is if you can't get other people to to, to, to have um, a high degree of common understanding of that idea, it will never get realized. And this happens at, at all scales, um, teams of all sizes, companies of all in every domain that I've, I've, I've worked in. Um, so finding ways to, to really develop a uh, a common set of goals and a common perspective on, on how you're going to attack those goals as, as a team, I find to be really the, 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 the linchpin of successful software. And a big, a big factor, a big reason for this, that I, I my opinion at least, is that um, sustainability of, mm-hmm. of teams and of systems is really, really fundamental. It's in some sense, well, um, we're simplifying, but it's a, it, sort of easy to get it done the first time build the thing, deploy the thing. I learned this in, in, you know, in startup land, uh, being able to build a thing that you can, that has a sustained life that will live beyond the team that, you know, that created it, uh, beyond the organization that conceived it. Um, that's really where, uh, a, a depth of common understanding really becomes critically important because otherwise things evaporate very quickly, right? We're, we're very, we're very fickle, uh, As humans so finding a way to to build sustainability really depends on this idea of shared understanding
0: hmm wonderfully said yeah especially the sustainability and that long-term play um, really being around you know for decades instead of a couple years and so I'm curious with this idea of shared understanding it's not always easy to make that happen Uh, there's usually some people in you know disagreement or wanting to go rogue Um, so do you have any examples of you know in the trenches when people weren't really gelling or working around that shared understanding and really how you handled that from a leader's point of
1: mm-hmm. view. It sounds like an interview question. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna use that one. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a good, good, couple of interesting examples. So back, back when I was at, um, at AOL, right after we got acquired uh, in, in late 2000, we started another project to build a voicemail system. So my company had built a voice technology and well, of course, email was was a sort of the centerpiece of their their offering at the time. Um, we wanted to build a voicemail system. So we combined their email system with our with our voice system to build a home answer voicemail system. Uh this is pre-smartphone, obviously. Um, and at that point, I was the sort of the, the lead sort of technology you know architect uh of, of the system. And I I was pretty naive about what it was going to take to get all of these different teams. There's, you know, six or eight different teams across the company that had to participate and get on the same page to, you know, to get the system done. We had the one team that was about customer kind of sign up and billing. We had another team that was the voice or the email system. Our team was the voice system. There was, you know, another team that did, um, you know, the storage for our voicemail greetings, uh, I had a really hard time getting them all on the same page to march in the same direction to produce the system that I saw clearly in my head. Uh, and, and the way I ultimately um, had to really tackle the problem was to, to spend a lot more time, and again, I was naive, had to spend a lot more time than I thought was necessary to understand where all these other teams were coming from. Like, again, early in my career, I didn't have an appreciation for, well, that, the, the, the team working on email they had a set of priorities they're working on a set of things that you know that that are important to them and to 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 fulfilling you know their responsibilities to their to their part of the business um me showing up and saying hey i want you to you know work with me on this this new project like what why what's it like what's the motivation it's not that they were had ill intent or didn't want to you know contribute they just you know they didn't have the context um so th- so that that was really my the, the lesson I learned there was to to really you've got to spend the time to understand the perspectives that people are bringing to the table and and this is is really a human activity more than a te- technical one. Sure you can understand the systems and how they're integrated and the and the the, the sort of machinery behind it but you know, it's the humans that are that are shepherding those systems that you know that really need to 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 be the the linchpin of making it all work. So that was the lesson I I learned from, uh, from that experience.
0: Wonderful, yeah, I love how you phrased it and just that empathy that you learned and then started to bring a um, little bit of that EQ that's so important these days. And you know, from that experience and bringing people along to answer that question, why, you know, big fan of Simon Sinek's work around answering that question. Why is oftentimes that why brings out a sense of passion, right? Because there's some who are just going to disagree, but other times we get so excited about projects that sometimes it's um, about reining it in a bit. And so I know when I asked you about some best advice you received um, and normally on this show, we ask for best advice. You shared some advice that maybe landed a bit, but also wasn't, um, Maybe up to par of what you were thinking as far as bringing emotion to the technical side yeah. of projects. So maybe share a little bit more about that advice you got and how you hold it today.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was around the same time of the story I, I just told um, where uh, I got advice from my immediate my immediate sort of supervisor, my manager, uh, who I really respected and respected this day as a as a technologist as a, as a leader. Um, and he after a, a meeting that we were in together where I kind of got emotional about a uh, i don't even remember the specifics about some some technical thing we were debating about, and uh I got emotional about it uh in in this meeting and, he, and my my supervisor took me aside after and and gave me the advice to always leave the emotion at the door. Hmm. to always you know you know be objective, sort of be dispassionate in in technical discussions and uh, I, I really took, the, took that to heart, right? I it was, you know, I respect this guy. I think this is this is an important piece of advice, but um, I struggled with it over the years to, to really universally apply that guidance. And I've now finally, you know, after many years, come to the conclusion that you you need to modulate. And there's a place for passion in in. Uh, of course, respect is paramount, right? i i you, you, you don't compromise respect. Uh, in in a professional environment, in any environment, but certainly in a professional environment, uh, that that undermines trust, and you, you can't go there. But within the bounds of respect, there's plenty of room for people to be passionate about their ideas, and and we're human, and it's the it's the emotion that we bring into the work that we do that that actually gives it life, mm-hmm. and um, that that I I I, I again take that advice very seriously because it's something that needs to be considered, but I think it needs to be uh, modulated with a perspective on, on bringing human emotion into these kinds of discussions, because again, it's the passion that really makes these things work at the end. Mm.
0: Yeah. Wonderfully said. And I love that concept, especially around emotional intelligence um, and given these times, right. And a little bit different dynamic as far as interacting with people. um, But still, of course, want to make sure we're bringing that passion so tied a little bit to passion uh, is what I really appreciate in your uh, leadership style, which is bringing the sense of autonomy to your mm-hmm. teams so more if you could elaborate a little bit more on that how you see it yeah. being important and um and really unleashing and inla- um, unleashing and enabling your teams by giving them more autonomy
1: yeah i, I do think it's really important so uh, autonomy the the idea that the team should be able to um make as many of of the decisions that affect them themselves as possible, uh, I think is is really important because uh, it really fosters a sense of ownership. And that sense of ownership comes with a sense of commitment and responsibility, which then produces both um, sort of strong motivation for making something successful. And again, back to sustainability, provides a, a really strong foundation on which to build something that will last a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that again, that sense of ownership and and uh, responsibility, I think, is is fundamental. Uh, and it really is a very strong attractor for for people in um, in tech to be able to direct their own work in a in a in a sort of um, guided and principled way, but have have a significant amount of Uh, ownership of their own direction. So I I find autonomy to be to be pretty important. It's also I found a a critical uh, component in building a scalable organization. So if uh, a leader on my team is, you know, we need them to focus on some other thing, that's not their their primary kind of responsibility for a period of time, because it's become, you know, important to the business, we should be able to do that without a worry that their team will be unable to execute effectively for a period of time without their attention and fostering this, this really sort of distributed and federated decision-making again, just another reflection of autonomy is really fundamental to making that
0: possible. Yeah. I love that. Especially with scaling teams, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with different parts of your teams um, over at Facebook in a variety of engagements. And, you know, you can sense this balance of the freedom they have, but there's also an accountability that they each bring And and the way you've been able to foster that in in attracting this top talent as well, and you have mentioned, you know, um, your experience at Google as well as here and many others uh, with hiring and and Mm -hmm. really the recruiting side of things. So, in addition to autonomy, how else do you attract top talent? So, a big part of uh,
1: of bringing top talent to 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 a team, in in my opinion, is in addition to this promise of, of autonomy, which I find again compelling and important, uh, is also helping build a connectedness between the interests and passions of the individual, back to the point from a minute ago about, about you know, sort of connectedness, uh, helping them um, connect their own sort of personal passions to a direction that a team, an organization, a company is going. I find that is um, critical, not only to attracting, but maybe even more important retaining top talent Um, because you know these days the the market is so competitive if you can't if you can't build that strong connection people will find a place where that connection does exist for them and and go work on that Um, and I can't argue with that right I hate to lose people from my team Um, but if I hear someone tell me that they're really passionate about some piece of work going on in another team or or in the worst case some other company the last thing I'm going to do is try to argue them out of it based on on that, right? That's the that's the 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 least the least appropriate thing to do. Now I have plenty of other things that I might be able to to, to argue with instead, but that's not not one of <laughs> them.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, of that. And, uh, and really just setting people up for success when they come on board. And you shared, uh, you know, I always appreciate your humility, Jeremy. Uh, another humble experience. And, you know, I'll let you share where it was from, if you want, of when you joined a new, you know, corporate environment and coming in pretty hot, coming in with some ideas, including with a friend of yours. And, um, you know, maybe share a little bit of that story and how it worked out. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, w- I will share where it's from because I think it's it's a it's a cultural culturally interesting uh, experience. So it was when I joined when I joined Google back in early twenty thirteen uh, as a new manager um, uh, coming to the company, supporting a team of you know of engineers. Uh, I again with a, with a, with a colleague had the idea to start this new project, and uh, it seemed like a great idea. And perhaps, technically, it was a reasonable idea. I won't go to the point of saying it was great, but I, it was a reasonable idea. Um, but we were, we were really ignorant of the contextual, you know, the historical sort of context of, of the organization that we were, we were existing in. And we had a, a, uh, a shared perspective. So we had that mark, check mark on the shared, shared understanding. Good, OK, that's not the whole story. Uh, that we wanted to achieve this thing, but we did not spend sufficient time understanding all of the things that had come before, all of the other perspectives, and probably most importantly, the kind of cultural nuance of a couple of new people, and in particular, a couple of new managers trying to get a new project off the ground. Uh, And it was really a humbling experience to, to sort of See this idea that we really did think was was a good idea, and again, it, it was probably a reasonable idea. Just really struggle to get any traction because it was um, so poorly positioned in into in the context that we were trying to to, to you know, feed it into. Uh, and this was uh, what I took away from it as a, as a lesson was to to really spend even more time because I, I knew right I, I was I was kind of given the heads up like Hey, you're going to think you understand the culture." At six months, um, you won't and you're going to feel that again in a year, but you still don't um, I should have taken that advice to heart and really given it given it more time to understand really the the environment that I was operating in, so I found that uh as painful as it was, I found it to be a very valuable lesson in in let me just put it as as patience, you have to, to take the time that it really requires. Uh, to understand an environment that you're operating, in, whether it's a big tech company like Google or Facebook, uh, or or a startup, right, where you're uh, existing within the realm that was conceived by a group of founders that had a you know had a, a perspective, you've got to take the time to really understand and develop, as you said a minute ago, under, develop the empathy with all of the all of the stakeholders that
0: are are around
1: you. Mm,
0: definitely, yeah, I love that lesson. Appreciate you sharing, especially from the cultural side. And it brings up an interesting point from what you shared around building your understanding. And oftentimes that comes from a level of, um, or an interest in measurement. And I know that's mm-hmm. important to you from a book you recommended, uh, yeah. by Hubbard. So maybe share that book by Hubbard and, um, and why measurement and that approach is, is so important to you.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great book. Um, yeah, by, by Hubbard, the book's called, uh, how to measure anything. And it's, it's got a long subtitle that I never remember, but, um, the book, the book is, uh sort of based on a, a very simple premise, which is uh, all of the things that we will very commonly argue are unmeasurable. Um, you know, Some nuanced kind of, of intangible thing in a business context, like how happy are my customers, right? It sounds like an unmeasurable thing. The, the book makes the, the point very clearly that really the point that people are making is not that it is unmeasurable, but it's too hard to measure. Hmm. And really what's beneath that is not that it's too hard, but it, that it's too expensive to measure. So the book introduces the idea of the cost of acquiring information. Hmm. So how much energy, money, your time will it take to collect enough information to make a decision? Hmm. And I apply this as, as much as I can kind of day to day in trying to be... Explicit in when I'm making a decision or I'm helping my team make a decision, uh, being very clear about the information that we have on hand to guide the decision that we're trying to make and what it will cost us to acquire more information to make perhaps a better decision. Mm -hmm. And will that better decision really justify the cost in acquiring that additional information? Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's a pretty uh, simple in one sense, but nuanced in another sense, kind of idea that I find very practically applicable, uh, day to day. So it, it's a great book. Um, you know, the first thing, you know, three or four chapters give you kind of all of the, all of the raw material. Um, but yeah, highly recommended. I, I recommend it to everybody that in fact, if anybody ever says to me, you can't measure that. <laughs> I say, you know, I ask them to go like, I, I, I will have a copy generally and say, Hey, go read the first few chapters and then let's talk again. Yeah. Um, and then maybe they can make the argument that it's not worth measuring, but
0: they can't say it's not. Measuring. Wonderful. Yeah, I love the nuances with that and especially for a, a decision making framework. And so I'm curious, you know, with um, looking to the future and especially the future of tech, maybe share a little bit about what you're passionate about, what particularly you're looking forward to, uh, knowing that technoc- uh, technology companies have even more pressure these days to make right decisions and especially yeah. for their users. Um, so what does that bring up for you? Yeah, for sure. It's it's a, it's a, it's a really great topic.
1: And um I want to be clear that I'm I'm not, you know, st- stating anything about about company policy. This is pure, purely personal opinion here, but um uh companies like, you know, the big tech companies, we have a, a pretty fundamental and profound responsibility to our users. Mm. And you know, this has become very clear to many of us as we've gone through the the, the are going through the COVID pandemic. Um that we in in social media, in tech in general, we play a very central role in, in people's lives. And that responsibility comes with, uh, or, or that um, position in people's lives comes with great responsibility. And in particular, I'm talking about privacy. And we need to be able to, as an organization, as a company, as an industry, uh, do a great job delivering experiences and connecting people, right? That's, that's our mission as a company. Um, but do it in a way that really respects uh, people's privacy. And again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, stating any kind of policy here. But it is, in my personal opinion, a really fundamental responsibility that we have as an industry. Uh, and I, you know, some of the things that I see us uh, doing are, are super exciting in this space because, in additional, in addition to it being a really nuanced and and challenging sort of policy problem, it's also got huge technical implications and the technical complexity of solving deep issues in privacy are, are, um, are there's a lot of richness there. And I find it a very fascinating. To me.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Such an important point. Appreciate you sharing about it. And so in addition to that, maybe on a personal level, uh, though I know privacy is important to you, uh, any gadgets or other particular tech, even in maybe the biospace and what's going on around the world or or just far out technology that's also, you know, top of mind for you or you continue to monitor um, just a little bit, you know, futuristic, exciting stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I am a gadget guy. Uh, you, know, you saw my telescope back. I keep pointing the wrong. Stuff. My telescope and you see lights flashing. I've got other gadgets back there. Um, the, the thing I'm uh, I'm playing around with now, which which isn't actually. At all futuristic, uh, it, although it seemed to me, it, you know, that it, it might have been. But I, I just bought a, a machine learning rig, an ML focused PC, uh, and it's got it's got a few graphical uh, GPU you know cards in it. Uh, and just for the heck of it, I went to to, to sort of figure out um, how to how to reference check this machine against the history of computing and. It's about as powerful as a mid-range supercomputer, like I mean, top ten supercomputer from two thousand five. Wow. So it's sitting on my desk. It's got four GPU cards in it, and it's a it's a multi-million dollar two thousand five supercomputer. Uh, so the, the 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 point with this is. Uh, the, the trajectory of this technology is just, just incredible. And it's, it's of course, a, a big focus across the industry, um, machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And I do not purport to be an expert at, at all. I'm just learning the basics. But it is fascinating, and it's going to play a progressively more central role uh, in all of the things that we do in, in, uh, in tech.
0: Wonderful! Sounds exciting. Looking forward to hearing more about that. And as we're wrapping up here, uh, a couple closing questions. And one is in a little bit different vein from the tech side. Is you know a nonprofit you're particularly passionate about? I know so you also have a passion for caring for animals, but uh, I think a local yeah. one, the Woodstock Farm Sanctuary. Maybe give them a little shout out or, or whatever else you're passionate about as far as you know philanthropy.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The w- Woodstock Farm Sanctuary is is local to us here in in the Catskills. Um, and it's, it's a great facility that actually rescues animals, uh, and, um, you know, brings them back to health if necessary and then, and then cares for them, gives them a home for the rest of the rest of their lives. Uh, and, and they do, and I've, I've been there in person and I've, I've toured the farm and met a bunch of the animals, which, which is, is awesome. But they're doing this, this, this great, great thing right now called goat to meeting, G O A T goat to meeting, uh-huh. okay. um, and it's not just them. It's a it's a collection, a network of of farms where they'll actually join a Zoom or or Hangout or whatever meeting. Uh, I have to and pause.
0: And are pulling in behind you. Do we have a goat joining now that looks? like uh, a goat? Yeah, yeah. No, maybe maybe it's goat the
1: daily goat delivery. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So they will actually bring bring farm animals to a to a, a corporate meeting, and I've done it for a few of my team meetings, and it's it's always a hit, right? Having a llama or a, a goat or a you know some lambs show up in a, in a in a meeting as a surprise is is always a hit. Oh,
0: that's awesome. Well, before uh, I give you a chance to share some closing wisdom with everyone, I do have to ask now, what is your favorite animal?
1: Oh, that's a very that's a very hard one. Um, I think I'm going to go uh, with um, perhaps surprising chicken, chickens not to eat. I like to eat chicken too. I'm not that, that bad. Chickens are amazing pets. When I lived in Palo Alto in, in California, we had uh, five backyard chickens and people uh, that don't know chickens uh, think this is kind of absurd. Um, but they're, they're actually Super interesting pets they have personalities they are they're friendly they are are, are really very interesting animals uh uh so yeah that, that's where I'll go with
0: favorite I've, I've got many favorites, but that's the one i'll I'll stick with I love it. Shout out to the chickens awesome yeah uh, well, I appreciate your time, Jeremy. This has been awesome. Any final closing wisdom for people uh, a little bit of inspiration that's what this story living podcast is all about, so maybe final words that you might leave us with
1: yeah i i, I I think what I'll leave in sort of in closing is, um, is learning, um, you know, the, the, the importance of continuous learning in life. And it's one of the things that, that I've reflected on a lot lately is um, am I continuously growing? Am I learning new things, whether it's a, a technical thing or a, or a, or a, you know, some, you know, sort of side hobby passion um, just continuing to, 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 to learn and have new experiences. Uh, I find, uh, I've, I've come to appreciate is really very central to my, to my well being is to continuously learn. So that's, that's the thing that I, I think everyone should kind of find a place for.
0: Hmm, I love that. Well, I've definitely learned a lot, Jeremy, and I'm sure viewers have as well. So thank you so much again and uh, all the best with what's next. And, uh, thanks again so much. Thanks a lot, Jack. Huge thank you to Jeremy for joining and for all of you listening in. I'd like to express my gratitude by actually ending with a short prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good, so faithful. And uh, thank you for this opportunity to shed light and inspire others. Praying for those who are struggling through these times right now. May your peace and comfort come upon them. And also pray for uh, that Woodstock nonprofit taking care of animals. Lord, we know you care about everyone, including uh, those animals. And so we just thank you, God, for being so good, so faithful. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in and much love.